All right, everybody, you can make your way to your seats, uh, if you don't mind. It is good to see you this morning. I was, uh, some of you are like, when is he going to, he's going to do the creed, right? You're kind of panicking a little bit, but you might have noticed we did the creed during the baptisms, so that was tricky of us, covered our bases. Good to see you. Uh, if this is your first time with us, my name is Andrew, I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, I was up in Michigan all week with my colleague, Daniel Grothy. We're starting a doctoral program up there. And uh, just gorgeous, wonderful week, had a great week. I'm so happy to be back with you. If I seem a little scatterbrained this morning, it's because I got in late Friday and tried to bounce back yesterday, and I'm a human being, and sometimes we get that way. We're starting a series uh, on the, that's me trying to set your expectations as low as possible so I can only exceed them. Yeah, good preacher move. Yeah, and plus uh, uh, Rory already went ahead. Like we already did the baptism, so it's all gravy at this point. So this is great. Uh, Book of Ruth chapter 1, I'll invite you to turn there. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and then we come to Ruth. And Ruth is such a beautiful uh, book. Most of you, if you've read the book of Ruth, how many of you read the book of Ruth before in your life? Good job, church. You're reading the Bible. The book of Ruth, you probably know, is this, it's a truly, it's a really beautiful love story. Story about this young woman, Ruth, who's a Moabitess from, she's not an Israelite. And she marries into a family in Israel and she brings refreshing rejuvenation to this people. So it's a very, very beautiful story. It's incredibly well told. It's also a really important story in the history of Israel. Right before, like the Old Testament has been epic up to this point, you know. Genesis, the creation narrative, the patriarchs and all that they were doing. Exodus, the story of the deliverance from Egypt, the giving of the Ten Commandments, the shaping of a people. Leviticus and Numbers, the wilderness wanderings, the way that God is shaping them for worship and for holy communion. Deuteronomy, now Moses is about to die in Deuteronomy. So he recapitulates the law, kind of gives his farewell speech. Joshua, they go into the promised land. They take the promised land. We get to Judges, and things get, like, really chaotic during the time of the Judges. People of God have difficulty, like, following the Lord, and they constantly fall into trouble. And God raises up a judge or a leader for them that delivers them. And uh, the book of Judges actually ends with this comment, Judges 21 and verse 25. In those days Israel had no king, and so everybody, say loud, Yeah, so uh, another definition of that would be anarchy, all right? And so the book of Ruth is actually written, this beautiful love story is written during this time of complete social chaos, and it's written before the books of First uh, First and Second Samuel, in which we see the emergence of great King David, right, who consolidates the rule in Israel and really sets their feet on a firm foundation. So as slender as Ruth is, it's only four chapters— It provides this incredible kind of connective tissue between this epic history of Israel, a chaotic moment in Israel's life that leads to a great deal of kingdom that God brings uh, into Israel. Ruth, uh, her name, and this is actually really important uh, for thinking about what happens in the book of Ruth. Ruth, the name Ruth actually means refreshing or refreshment. And so as we read this book, what we're seeing is the way in which God proves himself to be faithful to Israel through this outsider of a woman who comes into the house of Israel and brings refreshing to it, which also, I think, should help us open our eyes to the many ways. Sorry, I'm losing my voice this morning. 
should help us open our eyes to the many ways in which God is trying to bring refreshing to our own lives in mysterious and unexpected ways. Are you with me this morning? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you and we bless you and we thank you. We thank you that you're in our midst this morning. We thank you that you have given these scriptures to be bread for us. And we thank you that you are also making them fresh bread for us in this very moment. You're teaching us your ways. You're helping us. And so uh, we pray that you would help us in this moment. So I'm praying uh, grace even over my own tired body and a tired voice. I ask that you'd lift me up. I ask that in this room uh, you would lift our weary hearts up, that you would help us respond to you, that you would help us hear the voice of the living God. Jesus, we pray that you would take the words of ancient scripture and you would take the preacher's words and you would weave them together and that the voice of the living word of God himself would resound in our midst this morning, would make us new creations. That's the promise of the scripture, that if anyone is in Christ, they're new creations. Would you do that to us? Would you wake us up to your glory and goodness? Grant it, we pray. May the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And so a man from Bethlehem in Judah, his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. And the man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. And they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab, and they lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. And they married Moabite women, one named Orpah, and the other named Ruth. And after they had both lived, after they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. I want to pick up the action in a second in verse 16 here. But so we get, like, the scene is kind of underway at this point, right? Here is this man named Elimelech. Everybody say Elimelech. Which means, my God is king, right? So already the Hebrew writer is, like, tipping his hand to kind of the theme of the book. We believe that our God is king, and yet right from the get-go, we're thrust into the difficulty of life. We discover right from the get-go that there's a famine in the land, and these people are forced uh, from their town that they resided in. And the town's name, if you remember it from the text or if you have the text in front of us, is... What's the town? I'm I'm making you talk more so that I can talk less. What's the town that they were from that they had to leave? Bethlehem. Oh, very good class. And do you know what Bethlehem means? House of bread. So a man named my God is king from a city named House of Bread, experiences a famine and has to go to Moab. Now the Moabites are descendants of Lot. Lot was Abraham's nephew, do you remember that? And there was a breakdown in their relationship. And if you track the history of Israel through the Old Testament, what you find is that the Moabites and the Israelites do not really get along. It's not maybe quite to the level of the Israelis and the Palestinians, but it's something like that. There's a lot of tension, okay? And so famine falls upon the house of bread. All of a sudden, the house of bread is failing, right? And Elimelech, whose name means my God is king, all of a sudden, he got to be wondering where the kingship of God 
is in the midst of all of this. And so they have to flee the house of bread and they have to cross the border and go to a place where they're not received and they're not really welcome. And the sons there, they marry these Moabite women, which is already kind of a little dicey situation. And while they're over there, a span of about 10 years, what happens? The man whose name is my God is king. What happens to him? Well, this story is off to a bad start, isn't it? And what happens to his boys? Well, they also die. And so poor Naomi, whose name means, does anybody know it? It means pleasant. And she did have a pleasant life, didn't she, up to that point? She lived with my God as king in the house of bread with her good kids, you know, her two grown boys. Everything was like going good for Naomi. And all of a sudden, right out of the gate, they're thrust from the land, the famine hits, my God as king dies, and the boys die too. And now all of a sudden, she's just left with these Moabite daughters-in-law. But she's going, what in the world just happened to my life? And so she hears, you'll pick up the action here in verse 6, but she hears that the Lord had risen to the aid of his people in Bethlehem by providing them with bread. And so she decides to go home. And she makes the long trek from Moab back to Israel, back to the house of bread with her daughters-in-law. And as they're kind of following behind her, you almost get the sense from Naomi that she's a little bit like, okay, girls, like the boys are gone. Can we just stop with the charade here? You don't have to keep this up this whole thing. And so she tells the girls, turn around, go back home. You don't have any further obligation to me. And here we pick it up in verse 15. Naomi says to Ruth, Look, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and to her God, so why don't you go back with her? But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. For where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. And where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. And may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. And so the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women blamed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them, but call me Mara. Everybody say Mara. Any guesses as to what the name Mara means? Bitterness, she says, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord, and all God's people said. I want to just pause for a moment at verses 20 and 21, and the statement that Naomi makes. Naomi, whose name means pleasant, right? She goes through this experience that strips her life down to the bone. And when she comes back to the house of bread, everybody gets excited. They go, Naomi, the pleasant one, is back. Naomi, the blessed one, is back. And she stops them. Do not call me Naomi, she says. But call me what? Mara. Because the Almighty has made my life bitter. Yahweh, I went away full, she says. But Yahweh has brought me back to you empty. Like all of the good things of my life have been stripped away. Yahweh has brought hardship upon me. Yahweh has made, the Almighty One has made my life exceedingly bitter. 
And the text throws us into this story. And as it does so, it tells us something about something crucial about the life of faith, which I think is worth lingering over. And that is that the life of faith, brothers and sisters, is rarely easy. You're like, this is off to a bad start. Just like this story is off to a bad start, preacher, this message is off to a bad start. Can you tell me something a little bit more positive and uplifting and encouraging? But the life of faith is rarely easy. And I would love to tell you, I would love to tell you that when you cross the threshold into a relationship with God, that all of a sudden your life just gets amazing. You know, I would love to be able to say that. Except that the scripture mitigates against that at every turn. When you think about the story of scripture, the story of scripture just is the story of a bunch of people who find themselves uh, often because of their relationship with God, right smack in the middle of all the complexity of life. Think about Abraham. Abraham has that great moment in Genesis chapter 12 where the Lord comes to him and says, leave your family and your father's household and go to the land that I will show you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. He says, and all of those who curse you, I will curse. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. I'm sure that Abraham had every reason to expect at that point that all of a sudden he's just going to be up and to the right for the rest of his life. And it's not. When you read the story of Abraham, there certainly is blessing that accompanies him everywhere. And we see that. His life expands and he grows and he becomes wealthy and powerful. And we also see that there's difficulty and there's hardship and there's chaos that follow him every single step of the way. Somehow the call of Abraham, God's promise on his life, did not exempt him from the difficulty of life. Think about Moses. Moses who grew up in Pharaoh's household, rescued from the river. He flees, right? Winds up on Horeb, the mountain of God. And he has this dramatic meeting with God. The Lord appears to him in the burning bush and says to him, I'm the Lord your God. I, I am that I am. And why don't you go back into Egypt and call your people out of it? And you, I'm sure Moses was thinking, well, God has promised to be with me. Everything is going to be amazing now. And then you read the story of Moses' life and you realize that the difficulty actually begins for him. And he had not had a super easy life up to that moment, but the difficulty actually really begins for him the moment he has an encounter with God. That the promise with God doesn't drag him just into blessing, but the promise of God actually drags him into all of the chaos and the difficulty of life. Faith doesn't exempt us from life. Think about great King David. I think about this story all the time. David, the youngest of Jesse's sons, right? He's not asking for anybody to pay attention to him. David just minding his own business, taking care of the sheep in his dad's fields. And the prophet Samuel comes with the horn of oil and he looks at all of Jesse's sons. And do you remember the story? He says, not this one, not this one, not this one, not this one. These aren't the ones that are anointed to be the king of Israel, do you have any more kids? And Jesse goes, yeah, I got David, the young one. He's just out in the fields. And Samuel says, go get him. So Jesse does. And David comes, pours the horn of oil on David's head. Roll credits. The story's over, right? No. <laughs> David's life gets like infinitely more complex at that point. That's just the tip of the iceberg. And Naomi's story here is yet another tip of the iceberg. And when I read this tale of the people of God from cover to cover, there is not a single person in the pages of scripture that gets some kind of get out of jail free card with life. But too many of us, our expectation with faith 
is that faith is an exemption from all the difficulties of life? It's not, but we think that. We think that when we walk down the aisle, when we raise the hand, when we pray the, pray the prayer, we think that when we get baptized, that all of a sudden now it's just going to be smooth sailing for us. And I, like I'm sincerely not trying to depress you this morning, but just to like level with you. Faith does not de uh, deliver you from the difficulty of life. That's not the point of faith. But too many of us think that it is. I remember growing up in the 80s in the church and one of the things that started sweeping the American church in the 80s and the 90s was the health and wealth gospel, prosperity preaching, right? That just that taught you that faith in Jesus doesn't just secure a relationship with God, but it also secures for you unbounded wealth and health in your body and your family's always going to work and everything's just going to be amazing for you. And we kind of charged ourselves up with that, you know? And, and I remember this, this is the early 2000s, I think, when that book came out, The Prayer of Jabez. Do you remember that? This guy found that one obscure prayer. It was a man by the name of Jabez in the Old Testament. I think it was in the book of Chronicles. And Jabez, one out of many people, prayed that God would prosper him and bless him. And God did. And that guy apparently lived heavily, happily ever after, although we don't know very much about his life other than that episode. But we take that verse, right? And we elevate it to a whole system of doctrine. This is what we should all expect from God. That if we just lift up our voices in prayer and say to God, God, would you also bless me like you blessed Jabez, that we're all just going to live happily ever after. And that works for like 10 minutes. And then you leave your front door in the morning. You head out in the car. You get cut off in traffic. You run into your boss in the hallway. You get a phone call from your mom. <laughs> You know, your kids do that thing again that they've been doing over and over again. And you realize you're still married to that person. <laughs> and you realize that faith is not a deliverance from all of this stuff. And I think the sooner that bubble bursts, the better for us. Because I think what it does is it puts us smack dab right back into the welter of life where God is to be found. I remember when the bubble was burst for me. I was 18 years old and I spent most of my life thinking that if you just play your cards right with God and you're really faithful and you show a lot of faith and you mind your business, you take care of it, God's going to make sure that everything is fine for you. And I remember the day that I found out that my sister was diagnosed with cancer. My sister was here this morning. And she's fine. She got through it. But I remember that two and a half year battle with leukemia. And I remember, this was the thought that I had. When we got that news, I remember thinking, but we're the aren'ts. Like, stuff like this doesn't happen to us. Cancer doesn't happen to us. Tragedy doesn't happen to us. Disaster doesn't happen to us. It happens certainly to the pagan world, right? Because they got it coming. And maybe it also happens to those people that don't quite get it, like how it works with God. But we're close to Jesus. We love Jesus. We've been walking with Jesus. We've been faithful before Jesus. So... How could this thing happen? And I remember the thought that started to occur, like I, the thought, like the thing that you begin to wonder is like, I wonder if we messed up somewhere along the line, you know? Did we like break this? Did we not do this right? H have we done something to merit this difficulty falling upon us? And it starts just kind of working on your mind. You start thinking that there's like something weird or wrong with you. And I'm here to say to you this morning, as simply as I can possibly say it, that if you're here this morning 
and it feels like nothing is working right in your life, I have really good news for you. You are part of a great company of people for whom nothing seems to be working right. And if we had enough, I swear, I promise, <laughs> if we had enough time and we all got to talking in this room just like telling our story, we would all walk out a lot more comforted about our own stories. We'd be like, I thought I had it bad until I talked to so-and-so over here. But they got a much worse. There's nobody in this room that's living this sanitized story. And faith is not an invitation to all of a sudden exit all of the unsanitariness of life and just kind of come into this clean space where like everything works. Are you with me this morning? Faith, I'll say it to you this way, that faith, what makes faith faith is not that it enables us to avoid difficulty, brothers and sisters. Do you get this? What makes faith faith is not that it enables us to avoid difficulty, but that it sets the difficulty before the face of God. That what we start seeing and perceiving is that all of this difficulty is actually gathered up by God and it's made part of his great plan for renewing all things. And that all of our life is actually lived in his presence and that his promise never leaves us, never it never forsakes us. What makes faith faith is not that it enables us to avoid difficulty, but that it sets the difficulty before the face of God. And this is what I think is so instructive about what Naomi says when she goes back to Bethlehem. Look at how she talks about it to her people. She says, don't call me Naomi. She told them, call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life bitter. I want you to count the number of times that God has mentioned in these two verses. I went away full, but the Lord, that's two times, has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? For the Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. What Naomi does that's so brilliant is that she refuses to talk about her difficulty outside of the reality of God. She's not talking about God over here and her stuff over here. She's not living this like raindrops on roses, whiskers on kittens idea of God over here and then life over here. Nor is she simply kind of belly aching about life over here, right? But what she does, and this is what I need you to see, is she takes the two fields of vision, the God field of vision and the circumstantial field of vision, and she merges them into one field of vision. She cannot talk about the difficulty of her life without talking about God. And she will not talk about God without talking about the difficulty of her life. Are you with me? She pushes these things together. This, friends, is what faith does. Is that faith refuses to talk about God in the abstract. It refuses to talk about God as some deity up there in the ether. You know, the socialist, you know, the father of Marxism, father, Karl Marx, said that religion was the opiate of the masses. Do you know why he said that? He said that because he thought that faith too often pulled people out of the difficulty of life and just got them kind of imagining life in the great hereafter, okay? Religion becomes the opiate of the masses when we talk about God divorced from the actual circumstances of life. So faith takes God talk and life talk and it merges them together into one field of vision. And even if and when we don't understand exactly what's happening and even if and when we attribute things to God that maybe we shouldn't be attributing to God, still it's blessed. Because what the scripture wants us to do is it wants us to talk to God. Yeah. 
And what God wants us to do is God wants us to talk to God. God intends that our lives would be an ongoing dialogue with him. And when we live into that, God blesses that. And something happens to us that's really profound. Do you remember the great story of the book of Job? Job, the scripture says, the most righteous man that ever lived on the face of the earth. And God had blessed him for his righteousness. Job, righteous. Job, blameless. Job, walked with God. He's this incredibly wealthy man. His family worked. Everything was going great. And one day, Satan comes along into the heavenly court and starts saying to the Lord, you know, does Job really serve you with an authentic heart, God? Don't you think that the reason that Job serves you is because you're just blessing him and taking care of him? But if you take all of this stuff away from him, Job is going to curse you to your face. And the Lord actually takes him up on that offer and says, I actually have more confidence in Job than that. So I'm going to remove my hand from Job. And he's in your hands now. Take away his children. Take away his family. Take away his money. Take away all that I've given him. And I think that he's still going to worship me. And the devil does that. Everything is taken away from Job. And Job continues to worship God. And the devil comes back to God and says, well, anybody... Anybody can continue to worship you as long as they still have health in their bodies. But if I take away the health in his body, I guarantee that he's going to curse you to your your face, oh God. And the Lord takes him up again on that offer and says, there's no way that he will. I have confidence in Job. He's still going to worship me. And so Satan goes out and afflicts Job with all of these sores. And Job is sitting in the ashes and he's scraping himself with pottery. And his wife actually comes to him and says, you foolish idiot. Why is it that you're holding on to your faithfulness? She says, curse God and die. And he says, has not God given us blessing as well as the difficult things in life? The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And all throughout the book of Job, you know what Job does in the midst of his difficulty? He keeps talking to God. And there are times in the book of Job, and Job never gets, by the way, he never gets to glimpse behind the curtain. Job never sees that wager that happened between God and the devil. He never gets to see that. And so Job in his pain and his agony, he lifts up his voice to God and he curses God for all the things that God has done to him. God, you lifted your hand against me. God, you've made my life awful. God, you have made my life bitter. God, you have made my life so difficult. On and on and on Job goes, even though we as the readers know better that there was more going on than what Job could see. Still, when Job directs his complaint to God, God never resists it. Are you with me this morning? In fact, God welcomes it. So that by the end of the book of Job, you know what the Lord says about Job? He says, Job has spoken about me rightly. And that ought to give us pause because Job doesn't have all the details. And sometimes he's not speaking about God rightly, But I think that what God blesses and what God is pleased with is that we are talking to God at all. And Naomi models this. Naomi, the pleasant one whose life was just stripped bare. And she comes back and she says, don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara. The Almighty has reduced my life to ash. God has afflicted me. He's raised his hand against me. The one to whom I was in relationship, in covenant relationship, he's lifted, he's stretched out his hand against me. Naomi keeps talking to God. When I think about Mandy and I, 21 years of being married, my own life, 40 years of walking with Jesus, when I had every expectation in my young, uh, you know, young life, I remember just thinking that when you walk with Jesus, it's just up and to the right, you know, everything amazing. And in the 21 years that we've been married, it's, we have been hit 
over and over and over again with things that we did not expect, tragedies that we were not looking for, relationships that blew up, dreams that miscarried, things that we hoped for that didn't come to fruition. We've experienced all of that. And the reason that, like, just so you know, like the reason that I can get up on, in front of you on Sunday mornings and speak and talk to you, the reason that we show up here is not because everything is amazing all of the time. But I'm not wandering in here every Sunday morning being like, well, the reason that I'm here is because everything is just working out and I'm living happily. That's not it. What carries you through it all is your sense that there is a God out there that still can be spoken to. And part of what we're doing in prayer and in scripture reading, part of what we're doing when we're gathering together for worship is we're not denying the hard realities of life. But what we're doing is we're taking those hard realities and we're lifting them up before God. And we're saying about my sick kid, God, what are you going to do about that? And about my dreams that aren't working the way that I thought that, what are you going to do about that, oh God? And about my marriage that is not working the way that I want it, what are you going to do about that? And that estranged friend, what are you going to do about that, God? And God, I'm saying to you this morning, is honored by that. Do you understand that? God is not pushing that away, but he welcomes it and he blesses it. And in the midst of it, he starts revealing to us his plan to make all things right, which is precisely what he does with Naomi. See, one of the things that the scripture is constantly calling us to as we're reading texts like this and other stories in the scripture is that we're invited to try to discern the face of God. Where is God active? Where is God at work? In all the ways that are maybe not obvious on the surface, what is God doing? See, faith doesn't just believe that God is in heaven watching out for us, nor does it just believe that God is present in some kind of like, hey, I'm with you in fellowship sort of way. But faith believes that God is actually working all things out for good. And when the Christians of the New Testament read the Old Testament, because they believed that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was always and forever God's determination to do us good, they looked in these texts, the texts of the Old Testament, for the ways in which Christ Jesus had disguised himself in the story <laughs> to make himself present and to lead the characters to a good conclusion. And when I read this story here, I think I spy Jesus Christ. In the statement that Ruth makes to Naomi, here in verse 16, Ruth says, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. For where you go, Ruth says, what? I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. And where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Here is Naomi, whose life has been reduced to ash. And there is this pesky foreigner daughter-in-law that she just can't seem to shake, who says to her, where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people and your God. And then she says, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Brothers and sisters, 
If that is not a statement of what Jesus Christ does for us, I don't know what is. This is the promise of our God for us, that wherever we go, he goes. And whoever our people are, he makes his people. And even in the broken fragments of our idea of God, he actually inhabits those. You might be sitting here this morning in a welter of confusion about who God is and God's intention for you. And do you know that Jesus does not resist you in all of that confusion about God? There's not a single person in this room this morning that doesn't have confused and broken ideas about God. And still, Jesus goes, oh, is that what you think about God? Well, I'll inhabit that as well and lead you to a better notion of God. And when and where you die, I'm dying with you in order to gather you up into my life and lead you home. Brothers and sisters, this is just what our God does. That he tucks himself into our experience in all kinds of unexpected ways. Do you remember the story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus? Jesus was crucified, raised from the dead. Nobody really knew it yet. And there are those two. Do you remember the story? And they're walking along the road to Emmaus and a stranger comes up along with them and starts asking them about their grief and their pain and their sorrow. And they begin to pour out their hearts to this stranger with them. And then they sit down at the table and Jesus takes the bread and he breaks it. And the scripture says their eyes were opened and they recognized him. This is the story of our God. That what he does in the midst of all the breakdown and the hardship and the chaos of life is that in unexpected ways, he sidles up next to us. And I'm saying to you, I don't know what you're in the midst of this morning. Some of you are coming in here and you are right, right in the throes of it and wondering where God is. And I can't say exactly for you where God is in the midst of it, but I know he's there in that friendship that you just can't shake, (laughs) in a daughter-in-law that maybe you'd prefer wasn't in your family, in a job that you just like for years, you've been going, why am I in this stupid job? Or in a neighborhood that you're like, I tried to move out of this neighborhood 10 times, you know, and I just couldn't seem to do it. I promise you, God is there. What Jesus does is he tucks himself inside of our experience. He disguises himself and our friends and our neighbors and our colleagues and our mothers-in-law and our fathers-in-law and our daughters-in-law and brothers-in-law and sons-in-law in all the circumstances of our life. He garbs himself. And when we come to the table, our eyes are opened again. For we recognize the God who's also tucking himself in bread and wine and in the stuff of our lives. Guys, I'm nearly out of steam here. But this is what I've come to tell you. God is with us to the very end. Can you receive that? Can we stand this morning and begin to lift up our hearts to Jesus? And now here is the plea that I want to put on your lips. Open my eyes. Would you say that this morning? And in your own way, begin to make that your prayer. Open our eyes, oh God. Open our eyes. Open our eyes. The God who has promised never to leave us or forsake us. God who calls himself Emmanuel, the one who has made our history his history, our story his story, the God who never looks over, overlooks any detail, the God for whom nothing is extraneous and nothing is out of the way, the God for whom there's like nothing doesn't matter, 
everything matters. But Jesus said that even the very hairs of your head are numbered, that he counts all the sparrows and he governs the life of sparrows and he's governing your lives too. Would you help us see that this morning, Jesus? Would you help us remember that our lives are meaningful to you and that you are in them for our good? So we pray this morning, open our eyes. Give us faith to believe. Give us faith to believe that you're leading us to a good conclusion. Grant it, we're asking. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, can we respond in worship this morning before Pastor Colin leads us to the table? Let's do it.
Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Would you give him thanks right now? I know there are circumstances in our lives that it's very difficult to give thanks for right now. And I think that the call that we hear this morning to say, Jesus, would you break through it? Would you help us to see you in the middle of it? Would you soften our hearts, Lord, to hear just your gentle whisper in the middle of the storms and the loss? And what I so appreciate about communion by holding these elements in my hand is like it's a tangible example of that love, of that message, of the Holy Spirit, of, of Jesus coming to get you, to reach you. Some of you this morning might, um, might relate to Mara. Some of you in here are Mara this morning, saying, I am marred and I'm bitter, and this bitterness is becoming my identity. And the communion in your hand is, is Jesus saying no, your identity is, is in me. Stop looking to your laws. Stop looking to these circumstances and just look to me. Just receive me. And so this bread that's in your hand, would you break it? This is his body that was broken for you. He's saying, I want you to identify in me. Would you receive his gift? And in the same way, the cup he says that this cup is a new covenant the new covenant has been established in my blood would you with thankfulness receive this gift of Jesus' blood that was shed on a cross for you 
lift up our voices in doxology as a response. you lift up your hands to receive this benediction. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters. Give them eyes to see. Give them eyes to see. Give them a holy suspicion that you are at work. You are the one who says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. The scripture says, who can separate us from the love of Christ? You're the one who says to us, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Would you give us a holy suspicion that you are at work and that you're present, that you're tucked into the details? Give us eyes to see. But even if we cannot see, still I pray that you would give us hearts to believe that it is so. And so over my brothers and sisters this morning, I pray, may the Lord bless you and keep you. And may he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you, even if you can't see it. May you trust that it's there. And may he give you peace, that confident assurance that all things are working together for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Make it so, make it so among your children, I pray, O oh God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. I'm going to invite our altar ministry team to come forward this morning. If you need prayer for anything, we'd love to pray with you. Remember to see us at Connect Central on the way out. We've got a gift for you. We'd love to answer any questions you might have. Brothers and sisters, happy Halloween. I don't know. Have fun. You go and trick-or-treating. I'm going to get lots of candy. My kids actually are going out to get lots of candy, and I'm going to eat it all. That's what I'm going to do. Have a great afternoon. We love you. We'll see you next Sunday.